Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM, listener-supported community radio in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Catherine Garvins, and I'll be your host for this evening. Tonight, we'll listen to my interview with ecologist Carl Safina. Carl Safina earned a Ph.D. in ecology from Rutgers and is the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Prize, as well as Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships. He is the Endowed Professor for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and runs the non-for-profit Safina Center. His written work has appeared in numerous esteemed publications. He served as host for the PBS series Saving the Ocean and is the author of the classic book Song for the Blue Ocean. I will be speaking with him today about his book Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, which was published in October of 2023. He lives in Long Island, New York, with his wife, Patricia, and their dogs and feathered friends. Carl Safina, welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really great to be with you. Great to see you. Great to know that I'm talking to somebody in Madison. (laughs) Thanks. And as I mentioned just now off air, I finished your book, Alfie and Me, uh, yesterday, and I found it absolutely charming. And the the science and the theories that you build around it are very thought-provoking. So um, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. I'd like to start with exploring a bit your field of study, which is relational ecology. Tell me a bit about this field. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I've actually never heard that phrase before, relational ecology. But ecology is the study of relationships. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though somehow I'm, I'm like congenitally by birth interested in how things relate to other things. I, I didn't I didn't develop the interest because I got a PhD in ecology. You know, I, I got a PhD in ecology because that's what I was interested in. Ecology, the relationships among living things and between the living world and the and the non-living aspects of the world, like the water cycle, the carbon cycle, and, and all kinds of things that are that are not alive that make life possible and um that's what i'm really always interested in but having said that i i feel like um you know certainly a lifelong learner along this track where my attempt to understand is an ongoing thing um, understanding better understanding more and in this book what I really was trying to understand is Alfie the owl is a relational being. You know, that's what I found out. And I found that out mainly because I, I watched her. We Well, we raised her from a near dying little, little chick. Um, but during the COVID shutdowns, I had many hours a day to watch her. And, and after she was free flying in the backyard. So anyway... I'm sure we'll get into all of that, but the point is she showed herself to be a relational being. And, and although I studied birds professionally, behavioral ecology, uh, for a decade, it surprised me. Her capacity surprised me. And I thought, well, why is this surprising? I should know that the world is full of relational beings. Why is this a surprise? Is our disconnect part of our intellectual limitations as human beings or are we taught our disconnect so to answer the question are we taught uh, 
I I said to myself, well, what what were other cultures taught around the world through the centuries? And and so I've always been interested in real relationships in the world in the ecological sense. But in this book, I wanted to I kind of wanted to know where does our where does our cultural sense of relating with the living world come from? Is it, is it part of our culture? Is it just part of our human nature? And what I found was it's part of our culture. That's one of the interesting facets of, of this book. I, I, I don't know if you could call it tension, but this contrast between the indigenous people's way of relating with the world and the Western cultural way of engaging with the world that has been rather superseding that indigenous way of dealing with the world? Well, it's it's not just the indigenous way of dealing with the world. It's every other way besides the West that I that I found in a year and a half of reading into all of this. It's all the religions of South Asia. It's the religions and philosophies of East Asia. It's the indigenous relationships, despite the tremendous diversity of cultures, even indigenous cultures are tremendously different from one another around the world. But a commonality of all these other ways of thinking through the centuries is that everything that is holy and sacred is of this world, that that this world is a sacred place, that all the other beings are our relations and are equivalent in value to humans. Humans are special in some ways. And, and what the teachings mainly were that because humans are special in some ways, we had a particular responsibility to maintain the world's balances and to make sure that we do not put the world out of balance. That that is a commonality in every other form of human thought around the world through history that I discovered. Uh, and the West is a complete outlier. Um, this idea that started mainly with Aristotle that humans are the pinnacle, that humans are better than everything else in the world, that, you know, I mean, the idea that we are better than the world itself is, is you know, a bizarre notion. And uh, that the whole world is here to serve us. These are, these are ideas that are unique to Western thought that started in ancient Greece and, and really became matters of Western faith and, uh, and then have globalized the world in, in the form of the the monetary economy that was also invented in Europe that carries the the um, values of the of basically of Aristotle's idea and its wide acceptance throughout Europe as these values have globalized through the monetary economy that is set up with those values. That's why the, in in our economy the world is worth nothing. You you can pollute the world; it costs you nothing. You can destroy forests and make a profit rather rather than have to pay something for you know for the amelioration of the damage you cause that's not in the economy that's just a made-up thing we could we could as easily have 
an economy that that says if you pollute you you pay or or you know it will it will cost a certain amount that will make it um, much more worth your while to prevent the pollution or clean up the pollution rather than have to pay for it. But but instead we say, well, pollute the world, it's free. The world has no value. Um, that brings to mind a, a passage in your book. Um, this is a passage that starts on page 162. It talks a bit about that contrast, I believe, of the the world being seen as the sum of its parts and creatures being seen as the sum of their parts instead of in relationship to the natural world and how that contrasts with with what you saw in Alfie. Um, so it, the passage begins, life is nothing but algorithms, and ends with, note the locations of the exits. If you could read that, please. Sure. Life is nothing but algorithms. We've heard that said. Nothing but selfish genes. Nothing but digital information. A mind is nothing but nerve cells. The universe is nothing but particles and energy. It's all so simple for the self-aggrandized who say that. Certain they have the right answers, what they really need are the right questions. Flowering is about opening. Humanity at its best is about wondering even more than knowing. Real understanding generates further curiosity. Some of us are not threatened by realizing the immensity of how very little we know are awed that the universe is at least partly accessible. We're inspired with the humility required to comprehend more. Like most people, Alfie the Owl seems to act on things at face value. I used to share her apparent presumption that face value perceptions are sufficient sensors of reality. I did not know enough to question whether they really are. Now I do. Now I understand that the greatest thing one can learn is that learning is a process, that in the great ocean of understanding, we have barely wet a toe. To come to know less than one knew, that is the key that unlocks the universe. When you hear someone say that life is nothing but, note the location of the exits. Great. Thank you. I love that passage. So so let's um, talk about Alfie a bit. Um, you preluded her, her story a little bit at the beginning of our discussion, but tell me about how, again, how she came to you and kind of those first few months um, that you spent with her and your company. Yes, indeed. Well, all, all of the stuff we've been talking about, about our, the human place in the world and all of these ideas was really sparked by this little owl that someone found near death on their lawn, uh, very, very young, not anywhere even close to fledging, probably only about a week or 10 days old. And um, very, all, 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 well, messed up is a good way to put it. Dirty, matted down, um, covered with fly eggs, which was going to uh, you know, be a horrible end to her life within a few hours. But she was found. She was um, brought to a wildlife rehabilitator who was a, a good friend of mine. That rehabilitator knew that I knew more about birds of prey from, from a long history that I've had with keeping animals, doing rehabilitation, training hawks and owls and, and, um, and all, all that other stuff. So uh, she worked with me and I worked with her 
um, she did a, she did a really fantastic job of cleaning up this little owl and, and stabilizing her and starting her on the road to thriving. And um, at one point, when when we thought that uh, this owl that we called Alfie was very close to being able to just do a soft release in our backyard, which is basically you you let an animal have liberty where where they were raised just like a normal small bird would come out of a nest right where it was raised and then in the case of owls the parents would still take care of them for about three weeks while they learned flying skills and started to learn to hunt and everything like that until they dispersed so we were going to do a naturalistic sort of a release called a soft release uh, and then that rehabilitator had to uh, go overseas so the owl was with me, but she had a developmental delay. Her All of her feathers looked really great, except the long feathers on her wings that allow her to fly. So she could just flop around and not fly. And that um, meant that she could not be released right then and there. Um, flopping around on the ground for one night would, would be the last night she would get. And... Um, so I held on to her to make sure that those feathers would come in, which they did. And then I, I held on to her longer to make sure that they would molt properly and come in as new feathers properly. Because in, in my past experience with uh, a, a near-death little baby owl, sometimes uh, they, never, they never gain the ability to fly or they never molt properly and they actually lose the ability to fly right away, you know, right away when they're only about six months old. Their feathers fall out and they never come in correctly. So I kept her through all of that. And, and all of that time gave us time to develop a really, a really strong and very interesting bond together. But then when we finally could... Uh, open the open the door and and get her fit for flying around outside and finally leave the door open it got really interesting when she almost immediately attracted a wild potential mate and i had been trained um, to think that with bird courtship everything is stereotypical a male does something, sings a certain song, does a certain display, and a female responds in a certain way, and then that's a pair, and then they breed. Um, but that's not what I saw with them. I And this happened in the uh, late winter of 2019, and and especially first half of the year in 2020, when when the first wave of COVID shut everybody down and all of my travel was canceled and I had nothing better to do than watch these owls in my backyard for about five hours a day. I would get up a little before dawn. I, I, I pretty much knew where I would be likely to find Alfie. I'd watch what she did as the light came up. Um, I watched the interactions between these two owls and what I saw was not stereotypic courtship. I saw the development of a relationship that was very recognizable. At first, Alfie was not really trusting of him. They, they were very tentative with each other. Um, he would start to bring her gifts of food, which is a normal part of courtship, and she would not accept them at first. And then she would sometimes accept them. 
And then I saw them sitting closer together, being much more relaxed rather than chasing each other around, which is what they first did. Um, then, I, then I saw that she would come out of her roost around sunset and go to a place where they often rendezvoused. She would call, she would wait and anticipate his arrival. He would come, then he would leave right away, go catch usually a moth or some little offering. He'd, he'd give it to her, she would accept it right away. Um, this developed over weeks and it was really truly the development of trust and the development of a bond. Uh, and then came the physical act of mating. Alfie was very clumsy, didn't know what to do. We all remember that. And, uh, and, th and then she got it right. And once she got it right, they, you know, she never got it wrong or awkwardly again. She, she became really like much more like a real adult. Um, she laid a clutch of eggs in a, in a house that I put up for them, a screech owl nesting box, and they all hatched and she raised all of them. The, the, the male did a great job of being a, a father and a parental provider. Alfie did a fantastic job of being a mother and making sure that they all got enough food. It wasn't like the strong one outcompeted the, the others. It, it was more like she would, she would feed one until it was full and then she would fly to the other two to make sure that they got enough a after they were out of the box after the young ones had fled. She was really, really, you know, very competent mother. And, and all of this surprised me because, you know, even somebody like me who has done a lot with birds and studied wild birds for 10 years, we don't usually ever get the opportunity to watch one bird. You know, there wasn't an owl, it was Alfie. Alfie had a history, a history with me and then, and then a history with a particular mate. And I could, I could watch her at point blank range. She, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't care less if I was there. She was so, so used to me being there all the time. So I got to see all of these natural behaviors and all of these relational capacities and, and emotional capacities and the development of their trust and their bond. And, and that was really quite something. And that's what made me say, you know, why is this a surprise? They've been doing this since before there were people in the world. We should know who we're here with. Why don't we? Why are we so disconnected? Is it something we are taught? What, what, what do other cultures teach? One of your observations um, in the book that resonated with me was this idea that in ancient times, animals in this case, migrating birds, really knew more about the world than humans did because humans had no means of global travel and could only observe, for example, that birds just disappeared every year. Yeah. Um, well, in, in, um, I, guess, I guess throughout the world and definitely in Europe, because Europeans wrote about this, the migration was a completely unknown thing really people just saw in the fall big flocks of birds and then there were then those flocks were gone and they didn't understand what was going on at all so the question was well where are they going now people at that time 
did not know that there were other continents and no, no human beings had gone from one continent to another and back or had any of those experiences at that time. And uh, so they said, well, these birds are disappearing. They must have gone to the bottom of the lakes. They must be hibernating in the mud. They, uh, one clergyman thought they went to the moon and, and that seems like a ridiculous idea, but in those days, there were so many more birds that in the, in the light of the moon, during the fall, when birds were migrating, people didn't see them migrating through the dark sky, which they were doing, but they could see them silhouetted against the moon. And so this one clergyman said, well, they, I guess they're all going to the moon because that's what it looks like. And, and at that time, uh, people didn't even have enough of a sense to, uh, you know, of the solar system to understand that Earth is a habitable place, but the moon is not. They just assumed that the moon must be just like Earth. And um, that's where the birds went in the wintertime. Or um, another idea was that they just changed all their feathers and they just looked different in the winter. And that idea comes from the fact that we do have birds from the Arctic that spend the winter in our temperate zone and don't go farther south. And of course, some birds do molt from the winter. They, they have winter plumage, which looks drab, and then they have it, their breeding plumage, which looks bright. So with, really without the science of, you know, being able to study birds and without the human experience of traveling two different continents, all of this was just, um, you know, guessing, trying to figure it out, having having a good question, where are they going, but not having the intellectual or experiential tools to have any good answers about that. Meanwhile, the birds themselves were going from uh, the temperate zone to the tropics or from the Arctic to the temperate zone, or in the case of some of them, uh, some of the shorebirds and the Arctic tern, especially going from the Arctic all the way to the Antarctic, seeing seeing the entire span of the world from one polar region to the next, something no human being had ever done. Um, so one of the other kind of ideas that you introduced that I'd like to explore is this idea of Western thought versus the more interrelated philosophy, and what impact we're seeing from that now on um, the way that our environment and the earth is being degraded. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, not surprisingly, um, the idea that the earth has no value and that we are better than the world will authorize a lot of abuse and after centuries of that and you know after the industrial revolution and everything we have we have now what uh, what some ecologists are calling the multi-crisis it's not the climate crisis it's not the biodiversity crisis it's not the toxics crisis it's not the plastics crisis it's not the energy crisis it's all of it together because we have not operated in the world with a stewardship ethic or thinking ahead about any responsibilities to any other generations. 
we we all like the idea of human rights and and those of us who are nice would like all humans to have all of the rights that humans want and all of the human dignity that results right but we don't even think that we should also have human responsibilities where is the bill of responsibilities where is the un declaration of responsibilities but other cultures uh, particularly North American indigenous cultures that that you you mentioned a little earlier that we tend to hear the most about and know the most about, all of their decisions have to do with how will it benefit seven generations, everybody from our our great great grandparents to our great great grandchildren, how will these decisions affect everybody? Uh, yet in our culture. Not, not only do we not care about that question at all, but we have a formal way of dealing with it. Our economy, economists, when they, when they consider future generations, they are discounted. They, they are treated as of less value than present day people. Now, why would you think that? <laughs> I mean, these are these are the very best you could say is these are bizarre concepts, but really there's a psychosis there. One of the things I'm thinking about that I believe relates to that is some statistics that you cite in the book. I talk to a lot of people who are working in conservation, and one of the things we talk about, obviously, is the declining population of birds, the three billion since the 70s lost, etc., but one of the the things that you noted in your book is this idea that, or this fact, that humans, cows, pigs, and other domesticated animals make up now 96% of all the mammals on Earth. And, and birds likewise, some 70% of birds on the planet, are captive-born poultry. So not are only these native species or the wild species declining, but as humans were impacting that by propagating these domesticated animals that are using up resources. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, you know, at, at one time, essentially, the whole world was essentially all wild plants and animals and some human beings. And now um, it's what you what you just mentioned. And that's because we we are just spreading to occupy an incredible amount of the world. Half of the land area is used for growing food. And that's not to mention the trillions of animals that are taken out of the ocean every year. M many of those animals are, uh, many of those fish are, are ground up to make food for pigs and chickens, in the, what's called fish meal. Many of the of the forests that have been cut down in South America are to grow soybeans that are fed not, not to people, but are fed to cows and other um, animals that we call livestock. And with this spread, I mean, the world is only a certain size. And, and as 8 billion of us, which, by the way, is three times as many people as when I was born. Eight billion of us now are just just shoving everything else out of existence, and that's why we have this extinction crisis that we are are in. 
and we shouldn't even really think of it as an extinction crisis because if you're only focused on extinction you don't detect the the declines of everything across the board until it gets really bad and they're and they're endangered but before they're endangered they're declining and essentially essentially all of the wild animal populations um, and probably essentially all of the wild plants in the world are at their lowest population levels ever in the history of humankind because they have vastly less place uh, less space to live in because of the way that we have spread there are you know this from the start of the industrial revolution there are about eight times as many people now and as i said from the time i was born there is more than three times as many people that that difference is something um that is very obvious to me i mean i have memories of places and and roadways and and all kinds of things that were simply a lot less crowded when i was a kid so there's another passage that i'm i'm hoping you can read that kind of speaks to this as well on page 240 that starts all of this indicates and ends with not taught to care all of this indicates something stark humankind has made itself incompatible with life on earth if you prefer the tapestry analogy yes life's fabric is becoming threadbare and worn we are wearing out the world that had welcomed us we're too much of a good thing the trajectory should quite reasonably horrify us as climate disruption leaves towns burned dries up rivers and melts the poles as plastic gets into our food and pollutants of all kinds affect birth and health and even human procreation as nearly all wild species continue sagging it is not because we do not know it is because we are taught not to care thank you so let's get back to talking about alfie when we last left Alfie, um, right. her fledglings had um, started to move around, the three that were of her first first clutch. So what did you observe when her youngsters started their lives? Well, for, for one thing, be, right before they left the nest, of course, they were in a period of maximum growth. And it was very interesting to see how their father responded to their need for food. He started bringing bigger things, um, not so many bugs, more small birds and rodents to the nest. And he started hunting in the middle of the day. He, he for some reason, felt like it, what he was catching at night was not enough. And um, he started bringing chipmunks. So, you know, if you had asked me, do screech owls hunt at noon? I would have said, no, of course not. Do they catch chipmunks? No, they don't. And the answer is they don't except when they do. And and he did because the need was there and he moved into that. So again, everything I saw with them showed so much flexibility, um, so, so much ability to respond to the current needs. So after they were out of the nest, as you're asking, um, what did I what did I see with the young ones? Well, the main thing I saw was that everybody recognized exactly who they were. They all knew each other. They all knew where to look for each other. They would call for each other. 
They were a sticky little family. The young ones were often within just a few feet of each other on the same branch um, and often would spend the day in, in one or two of the same adjacent trees. I almost always could easily go and find them at any time during daylight because that's where they would get together. Usually one of their parents or both of their parents would be there with them. Not and so not in the not in the usual day roost that the parents had used before they had the young ones and, and before the young ones were out of the nest. So again, the things changed as needs changed. And um, they'd all follow each other around. If the you know, once it got to be about sundown, the the young ones would well, the adults would start delivering more food. The young ones would come out and follow them around. And if, if one of the parents flew across the yard, one of the young ones would fly across the yard. And then, and then the two other ones would join them. And they, they were always together. And, and if for any reason they were not together, like usually at night when the parents would be um, hunting in different places or the father was just out somewhere where I, I didn't know where he was, I would hear them with a different kind of contact call. And I could, I could kind of follow where he was in the woods behind our house because he'd call from over here. And then a few minutes later, it'd be, well, way over there, I would hear him call. And then Alfie would call back. And, and they were always you know, in touch. I'm over here, where are you? I'm over here, I'm here now. Oh, okay. And they, they'd call back and forth and the young ones would always be together. Often um, once the light came up, they would preen each other. You, you would think that it would be the parents caring for the young ones, but it, it went both ways in that regard. The young ones often preened each other and they preened the parents as well. So um, a, a lot of this was, uh, as I say, very recognizable. The, you know, family affection is a recognizable thing for us even though we haven't had a common ancestor with birds for something like 300 million years, but the vertebrate nervous system was set by that time. And, and all of these things that we inherited have not changed so much that they're, that they're completely different and we can't recognize them. Emotional bonding, family affection, it, it was there and it's recognizable. And, and, and again, these things surprised me, and that led me to say, why are you surprised? You are listening to The Perpetual Motion Machine on WRT 89.9 FM in Madison, Wisconsin. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Carl Safina about his latest book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. What else can we learn from Alfie and her relationship with her family and the world that we haven't touched on yet in our conversation? Well, I think that we, we tend to live a transactional life where if we want something, we, we go to where it is and we, we give somebody money and then we leave. And we have no relationship with that person. Everything else in the world and, and almost everything throughout history, even for people up until relatively recently, has been relational. If you wanted something, you would go to somebody who had it 
you would exchange something. You would then have a relationship with each other. If you view the world as inventory, you just take and you don't care about the consequences. And in our, you know, when, when we graduate from school, we are, we are handed a diploma and we are, we are told, congratulations, you've graduated, but we don't know where our food comes from, where our water comes from, where our energy comes from, where our waste goes, or what other living things are around us. What we do know is how to buy stuff. We, we've been made consumers and that's what we are called. We're not even called citizens, we're called consumers. If, if all you're taught to do is consume, you are not taught to care about the consequences of your consumption. Where has any of this come from? But if you live relationally, that's, that's an entirely different thing. The first question is, where did this come from? If you view the world as gifts rather than inventory, well, if somebody gives you a gift, it binds you in a relationship with them. It indicates they have a relationship with you. And there are many other cultures who have seen the world as giving them gifts. You know, there, there are many people in hunter-gatherer societies who believe that when an animal is, when they, when they are killing an animal when they're hunting, that it's because the, the animal has in some way allowed itself to be taken and it must be treated with respect before, during, and after, even the remains of the animal, the bones and the skin and things like that must be disposed of in a respectful and ritualistic way. These kinds of rituals make you present in the world and make you appreciate the world. It doesn't matter whether, whether the perceptions are scientifically accurate or not, because the idea that the world has no value is not scientifically accurate either. The idea that the world is not a sacred or holy place is not scientifically accurate, but these are the traditions, the very disastrous traditions with which we operate. If, if our tradition was one of constant thanks and respect, we, we would not be in the situation with the disruption, the fires, the extinction crisis, the, the climate instability, the intensifying storms that we are seeing right now. So given that, um, where do you find hope or, or where, where are we going as a planet, as a people relating to their natural world? Well, human-caused problems can have human solutions, and we know what to do. It's not like there's a big threat and we have no idea what to do. Like if we knew, like in that movie, Don't Look Up, if we knew that there was a giant asteroid coming our way and let's say we had no space program that we couldn't even imagine knocking it out of its trajectory and all we could do is put our hands over our ears, close our eyes and wait. We're not in that situation. We know all the things that we could do. And, and that's where the hope is. The hope is in knowing what can be done. I, I think that, um, you know, hope, hope is knowing what could be done. And all, all work and all efforts stem from hope. You know, you have, you have an idea, you have a plan, and you, and you go and do that. that. That, to me, is what hopefulness really is at its core. 
and teaching people to care and making sure that you and I care about these things as well. Well, of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. The underlying values are really the most fundamental thing. And the underlying values are really what the problem is right now, because mm -hmm. all technology delivers on the values that created it. I think I may have heard a heard a friendly dog in your in your office there <laughs> those few there, minutes there ago. are three of them there are three the of them I, th I thought i recognized the snorful of a of a dog coming to greet you um so is there anything else that we didn't touch on that that you think is key and and after that um you know how is alfie now what's what's she up to these days what's next for her ah well, I think we had a good conversation. Alfie is is fine. She's been free living for over four years. She has had two different mates. Her her first mate did not appear in year three. Something happened to him. She got a new mate this past year. She has raised 10 little baby owls and put them out into the world. And um, we still see her around our yard pretty frequently. And I think it's just been a very magical and uh, wonderful experience. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that you shared it with us um, in your book, Alfie and Me. Um, it was, as I said, a very enjoyable, charming read, as well as very thought-provoking. I think you've put out some really worthwhile ideas and thoughts. I'm, I'm honored that you think so, oh. and it's been really great talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for your time today. Um, I was going to ask you to say a few words about the Safina Center. I'd like to know. Oh, sure. More. Yeah, if you could. Yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah. So, in when I'm not simply writing books, I have two other things that I do. I'm a I'm a professor in um, in uh, marine ecology. Well, actually, my title is professor for hum nature and humanity at Stony Brook University on Long Island, and I also have a small not-for-profit group called the Safina Center, safinacenter.org. And what we are about is about um, talking about what's happening in the natural world and the living world and in the human relationship with the rest of the living world and talking about it in different creative ways. So um, there's me and then there's a, a number of people that we call fellows. We have senior fellows and junior fellows. Uh, and these are people who approach the topic from from a fact-based core, but um, create things that are creative rather than strictly factual or strictly scientific. So we have we have writers, we have photographers, filmmakers, uh, we had a sound artist, we have people who are who are doing frontline hands-on conservation work. Um, I don't know if I said we have we have had a couple of painters, so people like that who are addressing the human relationship with the living world in different creative ways. That sounds fascinating. Um, well, again, thank you for your time today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate your time. You have been listening to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Catherine Garvins. I've been speaking with Carl Safina about his book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe, published in October of 2023. Thanks for listening and have a great evening.